If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to begin a new series uh, this morning that we're going to continue for about the next six, seven weeks. I think it's going to be a really interesting series. I'm hoping to get a couple of things accomplished with it. One, I want to, uh, one I think is going to be kind of cool. It's going to be going through some of the Old Testament. And I think from this, you're going to learn more of the Bible, which I think is really important. I think just to learn the history of the Bible, learn what's in the Old Testament, learn some of the really key important elements in the New Testament that, that inform and really ha- helped shape Christianity. Um, you know, we didn't, I don't know if you don't realize this, we didn't really have the, Christianity existed for a while without a New Testament. And what they were able to do is they were able to go to the Old Testament and they looked to it and saw how grace was foreshadowed and how Christ was foreshadowed, and they basically just went to the, New, the Old Testament and, and understood how the significance of what had happened uh, in the event of Jesus Christ. And so we want to go through the Old Testament, we're going to learn something, but what we're going to call this series is Being Big in Big Moments. Being Big in Big Moments. And maybe I've been watching too much sports lately, but um, I thought that was kind of a cool title, and a, a lot of this came in my own life just from reflecting. You know, I'm 50, I think I'm 53. Someone remind me if I'm not, but I think I'm 53. You get a little old, you forget. But um, what happens when you get older, uh, you look back on your life and you sort of go, gosh, this was a significant moment. This was a significant moment. This was significant. And you kind of realize, man, my life would have been totally different. It could have been totally something bad or less than what God wanted, if in this moment I had done something different. And you just see and understand the presence of God and the grace of God in those moments. And when you look through the Bible, it details characters that come across similar moments, just like you and I do. Our our, our lives are not remarkably different than people that lived three, four thousand years ago in a lot of ways. They had relationships, they had ambitions, they had wants and desires, they, had, they made mistakes, uh, they did all kinds of things. And so it's, it's, we want to look through the Old Testament, identify what were big moments in the life of different characters in the Bible, and see how they responded to those big moments. Because we have the same big moments in our lives. And responding to them, and being big in those moments... It's just absolutely vital. And so I want to look at this. And I want to look at a character today called Abraham. If you have a Bible, Hebrews 11, let me read you the story of Abraham that's summarized here in the, in the New Testament in verse 8. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says this, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though we did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents and did as Isaac, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Verse 12, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky 
and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Now, let me go back in time and give you a brief history of this character Abraham. His story is found in Genesis chapter 12, and it goes from chapter 12 to verse 23 where he, uh, has, where he passes away. Those 11 chapters in the Bible. And what we find out about him is we, we understand from the scripture, Abraham actually was uh, in a land called Ur, and he actually was an idol maker. He made idols. That's what he was doing. Literally, the guy God chose the, the, to bring about a, the monotheistic people who were going to bring about a monotheistic faith in the earth was an, actually an idol maker. He was making idols, and he was 75 years old. He had been married to his wife, Sarah, who was 60 for a long time. And during that entire time, they had never had children. She was barren. They were unable to produce children. And so Abraham is, is uh, just doing his thing, doing his job, whatever. And God comes to him in Genesis chapter 12. And he calls him to leave his home, leave his territory, leave what he's doing. And he says, come follow me. Come with me to a land I'm going to show you that I'm going to give to all your descendants. And from you, I am going to make a great nation, an extraordinary nation of people, which became the Jewish race. In 1779, Frederick the Great was talking to one of his uh, royal counselors. And he asked him this question. He says, what significant proof is there that there is a God. And Marquise de Arden, who was the, his French counselor, looked at him and he said two words, the Jew. Winston Churchill once said, I know people that don't like Jews. I know people that do like Jews. But regardless of how you feel about the Jewish people, no thoughtful man can deny that without question, they are the most remarkable and formidable race of people that has ever appeared on the face of the earth. Abraham is their father. Abraham is the one that brought this great, extraordinary nation, this extraordinary race of people into being. And this is his story. He's called by God to leave, and he actually does. He leaves his home. He leaves his, his practice. He leaves his well-being. And he goes and he follows and he goes to this land and he goes to this land that's inhabited by people. And God tells him to go and make altars there and, and, and basically sort of claim this land one day for his, his future ancestors. And he's just following God and he's going out there. Chapter 13, he takes with him his nephew Lot. You know, he didn't have any kids, so he had a nephew. That was kind of his guy. So he took Lot with him. Lot was his nephew. And as they're going there, uh, one of the first things that happens, he comes across a king in Egypt. And this king in Egypt looked at his wife, Sarah, and thought, she's pretty fine. I think I want to add her to my harem. And Abraham saw this was happening. And Abraham could have been two things. If Abraham is that woman's husband, he's in the way. And if you're in the way of a despot, you get killed. So Abraham said, let's do this. Why don't you tell him instead of you're my wife, tell him you're my sister. Because if you're the brother, he's actually going to treat you pretty well. So Abraham goes in there and he actually does this. This is in the Bible. And that night, the king's there with his uh, new girl in his harem and he has a dream. And in his dream, God appears to him and says to him, king, you are a dead man. 
And the king guy goes, oh, my God, what? what? And, uh, and he goes, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't know. And so he goes and he, he tells Abraham, hey, get, get out of here. Leave. Here's some money. Get, get out of here. So that's kind of Abraham's start. After being called by God, he didn't exactly have his best moment in life. A little later on, he and his nephew Lot, their, their lands are growing. They're doing both really well. They're getting amount, lots, lots of livestock and lots of servants, and they're accumulating pretty big entourages. And there's a lot of conflict. They're fighting over land. There's not enough land. And so what happens is Abraham says, we've got to split up. He says, Lot, where do you want to go? And, of course, Lot looks at the valley where it's lush and there's a lot of green and it's really nice. And he says, hey, I'll take that area. And Abraham goes and he ascends up to the mountains where it's less green and less likely to be fertile. And that's where we get to actually the phrase, take the high road. He let Lot have what was best. Lot got the low road. He took the high road. And then later on, Lot gets captured and he's taken away by these kings. And Abraham gets 318 soldiers. And they go and they raid this place and they capture uh, Lot and they rescue him and his family and take them back. And so we kind of see early on that Abraham's kind of a mixed bag. He can do really uh, uh, despicable things. He can do unbelievable things under the pressure of fear and under, under, you know, bad circumstances, yet he can also rise to the occasion. He can do great things. He can be selfless. He can take the low road, and he can actually rescue and do really brave, courageous things. He's kind of a mixed bag. Now, we come to the heart of the stories in chapter 15 through chapter 22. Here's what's happening. Abraham is mulling over what he is doing. He's out in the middle of nowhere. And he is wandering around, and God comes to him, and God says this to him. I am your shield, and you will be greatly rewarded. And the the, the Hebrew word is the the word which means benefactor, or we might call it a suzerain, which had a lot of significance in that day. God says, I am your suzerain, and I am going to reward you greatly. And what happens is, is really interesting. Abraham goes, how can I know? How can I know? And let me explain to you what a suzerain relationship is. In those days when there was a covenant relationship between nations, there was a suzerain and a vassal. A suzerain was the great nation. The vassal was the lesser nation. I've been to Liberia on several mission trips, and it's a wonderful country. It's the third poorest country in the world. They love America. Everything about America is the greatest and the most wonderful thing. And what they would love more than anything is to be the vassal of America and us be their suzerain. The suzerain is the big one. It takes care of the vassal. It supports the vassal. It enters into a relationship with the vassal. And in the relationship, it's kind of like this. Whatever the suzerain asks the vassal to do or requires the vassal to do, the suzerain also must be willing to do that for the vassal, so it's not an oppressive relationship. So God is saying, look, I'm your suzerain. I am America. I am the, the great big dog, and I am going to reward you greatly. And so Abraham's getting a little cynical here. And he says, oh, really? How can I know? I mean, I've been out here for years wandering around. I've fought fights, and I'm doing all this stuff. How can I know you're really going to do what you say you're going to do? You ever feel that way? This, this need for assurance, this need to know. And so God says, let me tell you what I want to do. And he, he tells him to do something that in those days would have been very significant. 
He sets up the theater for an ancient Near Eastern covenant. And he takes a goat and a heifer and a um, ram, a pigeon and a dove. He takes those three animals and he cuts them in half. And he parts the pieces. And as he does that, there's a bloody path that forms. And what is supposed to happen in these um, ceremonies is the suzerain and the vassal will make a covenant together. And it really is imposing on the suzerain that he will do what he says he will do. And it also imposes on the vassal that he will do what he says he will do. And there, the idea of the split pieces is, is very severe. It means, hey, this is, this is a very severe uh, covenant. If you don't do this, this is what's going to happen to you. You're basically calling a curse down on yourself. If you don't do what you say you're going to do in this covenant. And so Abraham cuts this, he cuts this thing, he sets a theater up, all these pieces are split, and there's blood in the middle, and he's waiting on God to come and make this covenant. Now while he's waiting, these birds come, and they attack the thing, and he's fighting them off, and he chases them off, and, and he just sits there waiting for God, and he gets exhausted, and he falls asleep. Now while he's sleeping, something happens. It gets very dark, and he sees in this path that's been cut of blood two things happen he sees a smoking pot and a flaming torch walking together and past each other and while they're doing that they're saying the covenant they're basically this is basically the appearing of God in this covenant ceremony that's been set up and he's saying I will bear the curses for breaking this covenant I, as the suzerain, will bear the curses for breaking this covenant. But you know who is not in that ceremony? Abraham wasn't. Abraham rested. Abraham contributes nothing to his assurance that God is faithful. It's not dependent on Abraham's faithfulness. He's contributing nothing to this. And he just sits there and he watches this happen. And then later on, God tells him you know, to go on, and he goes forward. They do some other things. In chapter 16, he has a, a child through a, a handmaiden named Hagar, which he probably shouldn't have done. And that's a, a different story. He has a couple other things. There's the rite of circumcision, which I certainly don't want to get into that right now. And then they go, and God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. That happens. And so you have all these stories happening, and these other things happening. And then in chapter 21... 24 years after Abraham heeded the call of God and left, 24 years later, he has a visitation. Three people appear to him and say, in one year, your wife is going to have a baby. His wife literally laughed at them. She just sort of given up hope. She was just kind of doing the thing through the motion. She just laughed. And then what happened? A year later, they had a child named Isaac. Isaac was born. Isaac came about. There's one more story in chapter, in Abraham's story. It's really significant after the birth of Isaac. It's in chapter 22. The Hebrew word for it is called the Akedah. It's the binding of Isaac. And what happens, God tells Abraham to take your son, your only son, to a mountain and sacrifice him there. And it says, I want to do this to see if Abraham really loves me. And, and this is a very, very strange story. 
very strange. God is asking Abraham to sacrifice the child that he supernaturally promised him and brought about to even begin their relationship. So Abraham's the next morning got up early in the morning. He went right away, got the wood on the uh, the donkey, went up and took Isaac with him and a servant. They went up the mountain. During that time, the servant that was with him, he told him, hey, stay here. Me and the boy will come back. And Isaac asked a question. He says, dad, hey, we have the wood for the sacrifice. We had the knife. Where is the sacrifice? And Abraham replies with the, with the phrase, God will provide. God will provide. The, the, the Hebrew word is, is Yahweh Yireh. God will provide the sacrifice. Yahweh Yireh. And they go to the top of this mountain. And Abraham prepares to actually sacrifice his son. And there appears a goat. And God tells him to stop. And rather sacrifice this ram. And it's on a mountain. And And what we have here is a powerful picture of what's going to happen 1,800 years later. On a mountain, God is going to sacrifice. God the vassal asks Abraham, excuse me, God the suzerain asks Abraham the vassal. God the greater asks Abraham the lesser, sacrifice your son for this covenant. You know what that meant had to happen? If necessary, for the sake of that covenant, God had to sacrifice his son, he would. 1,800 years later, on a mountain, God's son was sacrificed. God provided the sacrifice. God provided the substitute. And we see this beautiful picture of Christ foreshadowed 1,800 years before he ever came. Abraham goes on, and after that, he, his wife Sarah dies, and then years later, he dies, and he goes away. And his son Isaac has two boys, and uh, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob is a younger, but he ends up with the birthright. Then Jacob goes, and Jacob has 13 kids. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, and the nation of Israel actually begins through that third generation. So that's what Abraham did. He is a flawed guy just like you and I. He did, had some good moments, had some bad moments. But he, he is remembered and his life is significant because he responded to God's calling. Now I want to tell you this, guys. When you respond to God's call in your life, and you are living a life in response to God's call on your life. It may be drudgery. It may be a terrible delay. It may be fretful. But in that moment, you are fully alive. You are here doing what you are here to do. You are here being who you were meant to be. And it is absolutely critical If we're going to live lives that are significant, that when God calls, we respond. We respond to his call. And what undergirds us to be able to respond to the call of God on our lives? What's underneath that? Well, I think there's a couple things. 
One, I think the most important thing is we've got to be established in what grace is. We've got to be established in grace. In Abraham's story, who initiates this calling? Abraham's not sitting around thinking of something to do. God is the initiator. God is the caller. God's the one that drew him in. God initiates. Who bears the burden of failure? God does. God bears the burden of failure. You know, a lot of times we don't move forward in things God wants us to do because we're afraid of failing. We're afraid of making a fool of ourselves. We're not qualified. We have too many flaws. We've done too many wrong things. We've got to be established in grace. We have to know it is God who has borne the burden. It is God alone who walks through those pieces. It is God alone who absorbs the curses for our failures and our faults. It is God alone. God alone does that. And knowing that gives you the courage and the strength to move forward despite whatever may happen. Listen, you're going to fail and fall in life. I can assure you of that. Like the Geico commercial, you're a human. Failure, it's what we do. It's what we do, isn't it? Messing up, it's what we do. Let me tell you something. He is God. He empowers the failures. That is what he does. He's God. He's an empower of failures. He's the empower of the broken. He's the empower of the, of the fallen. That's who he is. That is what he does, and that's what he's going to do in your life and my life. He's going to call us to that kind of a story and that kind of a drama. But we won't step forward if we're not established in grace. Be established in grace. The prophet Michael was established in grace. He saw himself as a broken guy who didn't fulfill his ministry, didn't turn Israel around. They were continuing to backslide and turn away. In Micah 7, 8, he said this, Don't rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. That's got to be in our heart and in our gut. Though I fall, I'm going to rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Paul quotes a slogan that was went round about in the early church. He says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That if we suffer for him, we'll live with him. If we'll reign with him. If we die with him, we will live with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we were faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. If you're faithless, if I'm faithless, and we are going to be, he remains faithful because he's not faithful because of what you've done and who you are. He is faithful because of who Christ is and what he did 2,000 years ago. And, and to, to respond to God's call on your life and to stay with it. Abraham went 24 years waiting on this to come about. It takes an established understanding of what grace is. God's the initiator in your relationship with him. God is the burden bearer, the complete burden bearer. It's in that knowledge that we move forward. And the second thing I think is really important, I'm going to close with this thought, is do what you know to do. Just do what you know to do. What's God's big call on your life? I don't know what it is. It's going to unfold 
just like it did for Abraham and these characters we're going to look at. It, it's going to be piece by piece, moment by moment, step by step. But do what you're going to do. Somebody says, I want to be a great businessman, have a lot of money and give a lot of money away. I don't want to have this crappy job forever. That's great. But are you giving while you have the crappy job? Because if you're not giving while you have the crappy job, guess what? Guess what's going to happen when you have a big explosive company, fellas? Probably won't give. It won't matter. You're going to miss God's calling on your life. Somebody says, I want to go into ministry. I want to do something big for God, do something great. Are you doing something small for God? Are you ministering to anybody? Are you leading a Bible study? Are you in a Bible study? Are you sharing your faith with your friends? You're reaching out to the poor? Are you, are you doing, uh, I'm, you're waiting for the big time, huh? Well, good. You'll never get there. <laughs> the big time is doing little things. I assure you of that. When we're single, we're going, oh, I just want to get married one day and have a great family. Have a family. What kind of single are you? Are you living holy? You saving yourself for your mate? You saving yourself for one person? Are you learning to be responsible to take care of yourself? Are you doing what you know to do? See, we, we think a calling is some big, extraordinary thing. A calling is something that unfolds slowly, incrementally, piece by piece. If we're going to fulfill God's calling in our life, it is doing what you know to do. And the big moments will come. The big moments will come. This is a remarkable story here of Abraham, who by faith, when he was called, went with what God wanted him to do. And I want to tell every one of you, God has a call on your life. He has a plan on your life. There are special ways he wants to use you and great things he wants to do in your life. And I want to encourage you when those big moments come, the big moment when he begins to speak to you about what to do. Trust him. Go with him. Go with the God who is your burden bearer. Go with the God who absorbed the curses. Go with the God who has borne our failure on a cross 2,000 years ago. And trust him to do something very special in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for the example of Abraham, for his faith. We thank you for faith and grace, and, and we thank you for you just being the burden bearer. Lord, you're the one who walked through the blood. You're the one who bore our curses. You're the one who took away our sin. We thank you. You're the kind of God who would actually ask a guy to sacrifice his son because it would commit you to doing the same thing for our sake and help us as we see the wonder of it all to trust you with our lives and move forward with you and your purposes for our lives we thank you for this in jesus name amen 